Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we do pray that you would revive us. Father, we pray that as we uh, look into your word, Father, pray that you'd strengthen us by it. Father, pray that you'd challenge us by it. Father, pray uh, that we might be uh, changed because of what we hear. Father, thank you for this letter of Romans that we're looking at. And Father, pray that it would make such a difference to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, society is going down the pan. Have you seen the violent crime rates across the country? Knife crime is up among children. Burglary is up. Divorce rates are up. Adultery is now commonplace, almost expected. I mean, have you seen Jeremy Kyle? Uh, sometimes I, I get to watch that on a, uh, a weekday and, you know, DNA tests because the mum is sleeping with several men at the same time or partners cheating on their partners with their partner's sisters. Cohabitation has become the norm instead of marriage and probably soon we'll be ditching marriage altogether for civil partnerships. And people are proud of themselves and self-promoting. Look at me. I'm amazing. Look at how wonderful I am. Have you seen my wonderful family and children on Instagram? And talking of children, have you seen the way that children behave these days? Talking back to parents, teenagers throwing strops in Sainsbury's because their parents won't buy them the right kind of hummus. The gap between the rich and the poor is rising as greed is everywhere. And have you seen some of those super rich owning whole streets while other people are hungry and starve? And don't get me started on the politicians, self-seeking, self-serving, greedy, thriving on gossip and lies. Society as a whole out there is foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And just as it seems it can't get any worse, it invents a new way of perverting God's good creation. Agreed? You can see some nods. Well, therefore, you in here have no excuse before God. Why? Because you know what is right. But, the Bible passage here says, we don't do what is right. We don't approve of wrongfulness, but we still do it anyway. Paul here in Romans is in the middle of an argument, uh, a discussion proving that all of us, without exception, are facing God's terrible judgment. He started off last week by attacking those who do wrong and approve of what is wrong. We saw there that big long list um, of, of things that they did, and it finished with verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It showed us, didn't it, that terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin by swapping God for something else, and how they're handed over to sin, and that shows itself in the sins that we commit. And we finished with that list there, didn't we, of 21 sins that come out of our sinful hearts. And we summed it up last week with two of them. We're haters of God and inventors of evil. And you can imagine, can't you, as this is being read out uh, to the church in Rome, many of the readers would be hearing this list and thinking, yes, those people are disgusting. Those Gentile sinners deserve God's judgment. If they did it in those days, you'd probably get a few sort of amen. Uh, sort of crying out in the congregation as they went along. But Paul then turns his attention to those very people. Those people are agreeing that this is wrong. You know this is wrong. You agree this is terrible. 
then actually you've got just as big a problem as these people, if not bigger, if you really want to escape God's judgment. Because our first point is, approving of what is right is not enough, because judgment is by works. Approving of what is right is not enough. Some of the people Paul is writing to in Rome would have identified with that horrible picture that Paul paints of humanity in chapter 1. But many of them, probably like some of us in here, I imagine, would identify ourselves in opposition to that picture. That's what those people are like. Not like me, not like my friends, not like my family. They could see the problem, but they saw it as something out there, not something in here. Have you ever sat during a sermon and hoped that, or sort of wished that somebody else that you know was there? That's the sort of thing. I know we've all done it. I can see some of you smiling. You know, oh, this is a really good message for that person. I wish they'd been there this week. Well, that's what they're sat there thinking. They're thinking, oh, yeah, this is a message for them. But Paul brings them up sharp. No, you're included here too. He's led them a bit down the garden path by taking them and showing them the horror of, of sin. It's a bit like the prophet Nathan with King David. If you're not familiar with that story, he tells David the story of a man with many sheep, stealing the sheep of a man who only has one. David is outraged and condemns the man. Only then does he tell David, thou art the man, or you are the man. Sounds more dramatic, doesn't it? Thou art the man. But the point is that by judging these people, they pass judgment on themselves. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The point is that disapproving of what is wrong is not enough. Not doing what is wrong is what counts here. And it's worse now than I think it's ever been in our society, the idea that approving or not approving of things is sort of enough. People call it now virtue signalling. They do it on social media. So, you know, you like a cause on Facebook. And that's basically all that you do for that particular cause. People think, oh, this is wonderful. Or tweeting to your friends that poverty is bad. But that's not actually the same as helping the poor, is it? Just to be a little bit controversial, sitting in a tub of baked beans for comic relief or climbing a mountain is not the same as giving your own money. We get a bit confused with this. We celebrate big gestures sometimes rather than real generosity. So it's not enough to have a go at Donald Trump for discrimination if we discriminate. It only makes us more guilty of hypocrisy. It's no good to have a go at big corporations for their plastic use if we're using plastics. We had a discussion in our family about palm oil. Uh, One of our children had heard it at school that we mustn't use palm oil, that it's bad, it harms our world. Very indignant that we, you know, get rid of all the palm oil. For pudding, we were having some chocolate biscuits and we checked on the packet and they contained palm oil. What would we do? Well, of course, they still wanted it, didn't they? That's the way we work. We're, We're very good at you know, saying things are bad, but then actually we still do it anyway. So it's not just enough to disapprove of things if we do them ourselves. And the problem is that we do do these things ourselves. And we know that it's wrong, but knowing right from wrong 
doesn't mean that we escape God's judgment. Because despite knowing what's wrong, we still do it. Have a look at verses 3 to 5. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What it's saying there is the reason that God doesn't just zap people where they stand when they sin is a sign that not that God is soft on judgment somehow and that God doesn't care what we do. It's a sign that God is giving us time to repent before we face his judgment. God's kindness to us is not that he doesn't judge us, but that he gives us time to repent. He doesn't just zap us on the first sin. The problem is that we don't repent, even with that kindness shown to us. Just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, we harden our hearts and earn ourselves more wrath as we carry on sinning, whether we approve of it or not. So chapter one, you might want to say, are sort of amoralistic sinners. They do wrong and they think it's a good thing. Chapter two are moralistic sinners. They do wrong and they think it's a bad thing. But the fact of the matter is that both groups do wrong and both groups are facing God's judgment. Why? Because judgment is based not on what you approve of, but what you actually do. Have a look at verses 6 to 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, these verses might come as a bit of a surprise to us. Uh, it's, constantly, it's consistently taught in scripture, though, that judgment is by works. Works are the evidence, if you like, in the divine court. If you do as described in verse 7, you will merit eternal life. If you do as described in verse 8, you will merit eternal wrath and fury. Glory and honour for those who do good. Tribulation and distress for all those who do evil. And it's Jews and non-Jews alike. They're judged by what they have done in this life. No partiality, no preferential treatment. And we understand that, don't we? It seems ultimately fair. The one problem, though, what do you have to do to merit eternal life? Have a look at those, like verse 7 again. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. That is, those who seek glory and honour and immortality, they do so by persistently doing well, doing good. These people that merit eternal life do good all the time. So if in your quest for glory, honour and immortality, you do good 24-7 for the whole of your life, you'll get eternal life. And that's a real offer. It's there. The problem is that no one can do it. 
So think back to our illustration last week of the Titanic. We said we were on a cruise ship, but it was a, a bit of a doomed, well, very doomed cruise ship. And we said that there were all sorts of different ideas about how you could get to safety. Well, if you could swim the length of the Atlantic Ocean to shore, then that's true. You could save yourself if you could do it. But the problem is that no human being could ever do that. It's not really a means of escape because no human being has ever done that apart from Jesus Christ himself. So this is not meant to be there to present us another way of getting uh, to glory, another way of escaping God's wrath. It's not like there's two options. It's either by faith or it's by works. This is actually Paul blocking off that option. Sure, in the justice of God, this offer exists. But as it will make abundantly clear in the section that follows, we can never take God up on this offer. This category, if you like, is a category of one, Jesus Christ. So how do we get the reward without the work? Well, we'll see that later on in Romans. But this is not suggesting another means of salvation. It's showing us the impossibility of other means of salvation. We could try and swim the Atlantic, but that will not end in our salvation. That will actually end in our death. So approving of what is right and disapproving of what is wrong is not enough to escape God's judgment. But what about the Bible? We love the Bible, don't we? The Bible's right enough. Hearing God's word, that will save us, right? But hearing the law is not enough because you need to obey it. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We've uh, just spent five weeks on Sunday evenings, haven't we, in the book of James, and trying to show that James isn't all that dissimilar to Paul and what Paul says. Well, now we've got Paul sounding like he's James, haven't we? James 1, 22 to 24, I think it's on the back of your sheets. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Both agree it's not enough to be a hearer of the word. We need to be a doer of the word. So you could sit under the best Bible teaching in the world. And it would be of no use to you whatsoever unless you actually put it into practice. In terms of judgment, having the word and not having the word makes little difference. And actually, those who haven't had the word show this. Have a look at verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, who didn't have the law, still have a sense of right and wrong. Just like there's a basic knowledge of God in the world that we saw last week or, uh, and the week before, um, it makes us without excuse. Um, and here it makes us out of, uh, without excuse because we have a sense of right and wrong, right across the world. In the main part, ethics across the globe 
across the world are actually very similar. There are uh, different uh, nuances to them. It doesn't mean that they're all the same, all the different religions that teach similar uh, ethics. But it does mean that there's something innate to our sense of right and wrong. But just as the knowledge of God is suppressed, so our consciences too can be manipulated. Our consciences can be confused and corrupted. But on the whole, we all have a rough sense of what is right and wrong. But the point is here, though, that even those without the law sometimes do what's right. And those with the law do what is wrong. So having the law or not having the law doesn't make a great deal of difference. Why? Because all will face judgment. Because all don't live up to what they know. Even if you've never heard of God's law, you still have a conscience. Can any of us say this morning that we've always listened to our conscience before doing something? Can any of us say that we've never felt guilty for something after we've done it? The catchphrase that you sometimes get banded about these days, no regrets, is a lie. And I've found often that people who use it often are tortured by terrible things that they've done in their past. No regrets is a sort of mantra that they repeat to themselves to try and get over it. If they really think they have no regrets, then they're lying to themselves. And there are things in their life that often they should feel terribly ashamed of. So those of us with no knowledge of the law, we fail to live up to God's witness in our hearts, our conscience. Those of us who've known the requirements of God's law from childhood, we certainly don't live up to that. So none of us have an excuse. No matter how much we've heard or we haven't heard, we don't live up to what God has revealed to us. So all of us are guilty and without excuse. However much Bible we know, and whoever's ministry we've sat under, in fact we're put to shame by those who do better with less, aren't we? Who've not had the same privileges that we've had. But there'll be no hiding on that day. God even knows the secrets of our hearts. And Paul now targets specifically one group within these moralising people. He targets the Jews specifically, but you could equally read it as religious moralizers. Have a look at verses 17 to 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children... Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I'm going to read one more. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You see, this group here, they boast about their religiosity. This group not only sit under Bible teaching, they actually do the teaching. That's what he's saying. This is a group who like to tell others how to do it. Almost patronizingly so. Do you see how they see themselves? A guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of children. Do you see how they see themselves and how they see everybody else? Children, foolish, blind, darkness. How condescending. This is what happens when you have religion and no gospel. You get a bunch of stuck up moralists who go around looking down at people. And it's not as if though they're looking in the wrong place. They're getting their morals from the Bible. They're relying on God's law for their pronouncements and instructions. 
So it, it sort of sounds half right, doesn't it, in a way? But that's why it's so dangerous. Week in, week out, these folks open the Bible and they teach it. But what do they teach from it? They teach you must obey the law. But believing that you must obey the law, even teaching that you must obey the law, is not obeying the law. It's not doing it, is it? And they seem to think that it's a a get-out-of-hell-free card, a sort of free ride against God's judgment. They have the truth about how they should live, but they don't obey the truth. So verse 21 and 22, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You see, boasting in having the law, knowing the law, even teaching the law, means nothing if you break the law. And all of us, of course, do. And instead of bringing honour to God, actually, it brings dishonour to God. Do you see that in verse 23? You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. So it's not as if they're sort of halfway there. Actually, this is bringing dishonour to God. It's wrong and sinful. Instead of the nations praising God for what they're doing, have a look at what happens in 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying that instead of this bringing glory to God across the world, they look at these religious hypocrites and they blaspheme God. They can spot a hypocrite just as much as the next man. And this is the sort of thing that puts people off Christianity as well, isn't it? Hypocrites standing there telling others how they should live while doing the opposite themselves. So going halfway doesn't do some good. Actually, instead it does more harm. So Bible teaching, whether we sit under it or even if we do it ourselves, won't save us because we need to obey it. But surely... If you try and put God's word into practice, God will understand. Even if you can only do the big stuff, you know, like stuff in the Old Testament, like circumcision. Well, let's see. Outward ceremonies are not enough because it obliges you to keep the whole law. Have a look at uh, 25 to 29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law... Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, Paul is addressing the Jews. And I'm not for a second here suggesting that we get circumcised, but circumcised uh, here was obeying the Bible in a way. Um, Those who did it were, were trying to mark themselves out as ones who were following God's law. It marked you out as a Jew. And surely if you were a Jew, part of God's special people, circumcised as he commanded, surely that would spare you God's judgment. After all, that is putting God's word into practice, isn't it? Well, Paul comes back at them 
yeah, circumcision is great. If you're prepared to keep the whole law. If you're not prepared to keep the whole law, then it's as before God as though you weren't circumcised at all. For imagine, so for imagine for a second, uh, if you put on a fireman's uniform, that doesn't make you a fireman, does it? Actually, if you're not prepared to go in and rescue people from burning buildings, your uniform is nothing, is it? So circumcision does not make you right with God in God's sight. And there's no point in even being circumcised unless you're prepared to do what it seems to suggest, that you're going to keep the whole law. Well, who gets the praise? Is it the fireman in his uniform who hangs back and won't go in his building, in the burning building? Or is it the man without the uniform who goes in and rescues people? Who gets the praise? The man who actually goes in and rescues people. So he says, when those who are uncircumcised keep the law, they're in a better position, relatively speaking, than circumcised people who don't. And circumcision was never really supposed to be just an outward thing. Here, the real circumcision is done not by hand, but by the spirit. Not on a man's private parts, but in men and women's hearts. The outward circumcision was never the real deal. It was supposed to reflect something inside. And what Paul says here in verses 28 and 29 is nothing new. Actually, that's how they're supposed to understand it. So again, on the back of your notice sheets, you've got Deuteronomy 10. I'll just read verse 15 first. Yet the Lord set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. Oh, hang on. I've got the wrong verse there. Sorry, 16. Circumcise there the force, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts, and no longer be stubborn. Even back then, as circumcision uh, was given at the, the law, for the second time after it had been given with Abraham, it was supposed to point to something inward, the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of stubbornness and of pride from our selfish hearts. And the, the context is even more telling. I'll read the whole thing now. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord sets his love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are to this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. What God wanted, even then, was not outward circumcision, but for them to walk in all his ways, to serve him and love him with all their heart and soul. Not as a favour to him, everything is his. And the commandments you read there are actually for their good. So it wasn't as though God wanted something from them, if you like. And circumcision was never a sign of special favour, because the very next verse talks about the fact that God's not partial. God doesn't look at the externals, he looks at the heart. The problem is, though, that we've already seen in Romans, that our heart is darkened, and full of sin. So circumcision or any other religious marking or ceremony is not a lifeboat. It's not a way to escape God's wrath. 
The same is true of any ceremonies and marks. Getting christened won't do it. Wearing a cross won't do it. Getting confirmed won't do it. Getting baptised as an adult won't do it. None of these things will help you escape God's wrath. Paul here is closing off all the exits. He's showing that there are no other possibilities. He's showing that whoever we are, whatever we've done, we all face those huge problems that we saw last week. Our guilt because of our sins, our slavery to sin, and God's wrath at our rebellion. And none of this, not circumcision, not moralism, not Bible teaching, none of it can get rid of those huge problems. Nothing we can do can cover over that explosion of sin that we saw at the beginning, that we're all guilty of. And I'm afraid things next week are going to get worse before they get better. But good news is coming, don't worry. Paul has already told us, hasn't he, the power of God can overcome this. What was the power of God in week one? The gospel. The gospel of a righteousness that comes by faith. A solution that's by faith from first to last. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're still not quite there in Romans. But for now we need to recognise that all of us are without excuse. Wrath is coming and so far we've seen there's no way that we and ourselves can escape it. The world is going down the pan. But without Christ, we have no way of, without, of not going down the pan with it. But praise the Lord that he has sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by simple faith and trust in him, we can know eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, as we read these words, Father, as we hear about approving of what is good but not doing it of teaching what is good but not doing it Father prick our hearts we pray uh, help us to know that we are those people who do that Father help us to realise that we are in danger, so much danger without the Lord Jesus Christ Father help us to cling to him not to our morality Father not to our sense of right and wrong but wholly uh, cling upon Christ cling to him as our only rescue from your wrath and we ask it in Jesus name, Amen